Jacksonville, Florida, a major tourist hotspot known for its seaport's vibrant neighborhoods and scenic coastline. But not far from the bustling beaches, there's a low-income neighborhood that will become the backdrop for a perverse and mysterious series of crimes. Around 10.30 p.m. on January 1st, 2003, family members of 19-year-old Nikia Chanel Kilpatrick went to her Spanish Oaks apartment in Jacksonville, Florida to check up on her. No one in the family had heard from her for several days, which was unusual considering it was the holiday season. When some of the family members arrived at the house, they were surprised and worried to see Nikia's two-year-old son banging on the window as if pleading for help. When they entered the apartment, a putrid stench overwhelmed them. Something was terribly wrong. Nikia was nowhere in sight. However, as they walked through the apartment, they found Nikia's 11-month-old son crawling around on the floor. Then, to their horror, they discovered Nikia's decomposing remains lying in one of the bedrooms. She had been bound and strangled to death with a cord. The police were immediately called to the scene. Investigators conducted an extensive search of the home and its surroundings. Soon afterward, Nikia's body was removed and taken to the coroner. The medical investigation later revealed evidence pointing to Nikia having non-consensual sex and being murdered up to 48 hours before the discovery of her body. Further examination of the body revealed that she had been six months pregnant at the time of her death. Although Nikia's two small children were unharmed, they suffered from malnutrition as well as the trauma of being confined with their mother's corpse. The boys managed to survive by eating dried food from the kitchen. They were put in the care of Nikia's family. Investigators were able to collect vital physical evidence from the murder scene, yet the evidence did not lead to the identity of the murderer. Police were confident that the murder was not the killer's first because some aspects of the crime appeared too organized. It was further speculated that Nikia would not be his last victim. They couldn't have been more accurate. Within the space of approximately one month, three more bodies would be discovered that would be attributed to the same killer. Moreover, three other murders, including that of another unborn child, would later be added to the list, totaling eight known victims. It quickly became clear that Jacksonville had a terrifying serial killer on its hands. 20-year-old Shawanda Denise McAllister was an independent and hard-working girl determined to forge a successful, happy life. She simultaneously worked as a certified nursing assistant and attended school in the hopes of one day climbing the ladder within the medical field. However, all of her dreams were cut short by the hands of a ruthless killer. On January 10, 2003, Shawanda had been found strangled to death with a cord in her Jacksonville apartment on Arco Drive. In many ways, Shawanda's death bore marked similarities to Nakia's murder. Like Nakia, there was evidence of non-consensual sex, and both victims had been bound in a similar manner. Also, like Nakia, she had been pregnant at the time of her death. Investigators suspected that Shawanda and Nakia died at the hands of the same killer. Investigators also linked another previous murder to that of Shawanda and Nakia. On December 19, 2002, police discovered the remains of 18-year-old Nicole L. Williams. She was found wrapped in a light blue blanket in a ditch on Sutel Drive in Jacksonville. It was suggested that she was murdered in a local Jacksonville hotel. Nicole had been bound and strangled like Shawanda and Nakia. There was also evidence of non-consensual sex. Moreover, investigators revealed that DNA taken from the unknown assailant matched samples taken from all three victims. 
there was little doubt that the same killer was responsible for the deaths of the three women. On February 5, 2003, a construction crew clearing out a vacant lot on New Kings Road in Jacksonville made a gruesome discovery. Workers found the remains of 17-year-old Giovanna Tirica Jackson in a ditch. She had been missing since January 20, 2003. The police were immediately called to the scene. Shortly after their arrival, they discovered the remains of another young woman six feet from where Giovanna's body had been found. The young woman was later identified as a 19-year-old mother of two, Sarita Ann Cohen, who had been missing since February 4th. Ron Word of the Associated Press reported that evidence suggested that the girls' hands had been bound behind their backs. There was also evidence that the girls had non-consensual sex prior to their deaths. However, one of the most vital clues of the investigation was revealed when witnesses claimed to have seen both Giovanna and Sarita with a cab driver prior to their disappearance. It was the cab driver's clue that linked the case to a man named Paul Duraso. Paul Duraso was born on August 11, 1970, in Beaumont, Texas, and moved around frequently throughout his life. To date, little is known about his childhood. What is known is that Paul had a checkered history, including an extensive police record dating back to 1991. According to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, Paul's first known arrests took place in December 1991 and January 1992 for two separate accounts of concealment of firearms in California. Paul then enlisted in the United States Army and was temporarily stationed in Germany. While there, he met a 21-year-old servicewoman at a nightclub. They fell in love and married in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1995. The two were then transferred to Fort Benning, Georgia. It was there that Paul's legal problems began to emerge. He was arrested and later acquitted on charges of the 1997 kidnapping and having non-consensual sex with a young woman. One month following his acquittal, a young woman, Tracy Habersham, was found dead. But, for some reason, Paul was not a suspect in the crime. Paul was found in possession of stolen goods, which led to a court-martial hearing and his being discharged early from the army. Paul's legal issues put a tremendous strain on his marriage. Following his dishonorable discharge, he found it increasingly difficult to find a job. He worked in a series of temporary positions, yet it remained difficult for the couple to make ends meet. 1997 was an eventful year for the struggling couple. They relocated to his wife's hometown of Jacksonville, where they moved into an apartment on Moncrief Road. Soon after, they welcomed the birth of a new baby girl into their family, which was quickly followed by the birth of another little girl approximately one year later. Interviews with friends and neighbors of the couple suggested that they continued to experience tremendous marital strain during the late 1990s. Paul was described by acquaintances as a lewd womanizer who often fought with his wife over financial problems, his inability to maintain a job, and his adulterous behavior. Paul frequently made sexually suggestive comments to area women and attempted to seduce young girls in the neighborhood. On occasion, the couple's marital spats would escalate to the point of physical violence. The Times Union wrote, In August 1999, police told Duraso's wife how to seek a domestic violence restraining order after she told him she was slapped and that her husband tried to grab her around the neck in a fight over finances. The first time she petitioned for protection came a year later when Duroso became violently angry when I told him that I was planning to file for divorce, she wrote. The violence was ongoing she wrote in a 2000 petition, and I'm afraid it will escalate, she said. 
The injunction was never granted because Paul and his wife came to an agreement to drop the petition. In fact, the problems had already begun to escalate. A month earlier, Paul had been arrested for trespassing on private property. Then, in March 2001, Paul physically assaulted his wife once again. He put his hands around her neck and threatened to kill her. Another injunction was sought. Friends felt sorry for his wife, who was a very nice person who both worked and went to school. According to the Paul DeRosso timeline provided by the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office and the State Attorney's Office, Paul was then arrested and sentenced to one month in jail and two years probation for the June 2001 non-consensual sex charge against a Jacksonville woman. He was then arrested again for physically abusing his wife in August 2001, for which he spent another month and a half behind bars. Paul's criminal files expanded even more following his arrest in April 2002 for burglary, although he was later acquitted of the charge. By many accounts, Paul had a lengthy police record. However, despite the fact that he was a convicted felon, Paul had no difficulty finding temporary work. In August 2001, he worked for several weeks as a school bus driver, as well as in other temporary positions, such as as an animal control worker. In January 2003, he also worked for Gator City Taxi, a local Jacksonville cab company. During his job as a cab driver, it was believed that Paul became acquainted with many women, including murder victims Cohen and Jefferson. At the time of their murders, Paul was already a leading suspect in the investigation due to his outstanding police record and clues linking him to some of the victims. One important clue came from Giovanna's mother. Giovanna was last seen getting into a cab driven by a man referred to as D. When Giovanna failed to return home, her aunt called her cell phone, which was answered by the cab driver. The man told the aunt that he would return Giovanna soon, yet she never made it back home. Worried for her daughter, Giovanna's mother went to the cab company to inquire about the man named D who had driven her daughter prior to her disappearance. They quickly learned that the driver was Paul Durosso. The clue was an important lead. However, there was not enough evidence yet available to charge him. At around the same time, the strains of an unhappy relationship had already taken their toll on the couple. After approximately eight and a half years of marriage, Paul and his wife separated in January 2003. She and the couple's two girls moved to another house in Jacksonville. Paul continued to live at what was once the house's family on Patterson Avenue. However, he spent the majority of his available time at his wife's new house. On February 6, 2003, during one of his visits to his wife and children, police arrested Paul. Initially, he was not charged in any of the murders, although he was considered a key suspect. Instead, he was arrested for violation of his probation for the 2001 non-consensual sex case. While incarcerated in the Duval County Jail, investigators continued to accumulate evidence linking Paul to the murders. It didn't take long for them to hit pay dirt. During the murder investigation, police began to find clear links between Durosso and the deaths of Kilpatrick, Williams, McAllister, Jefferson, and Cohen. Evidence including DNA sample matches, fiber analysis, cab and cell phone records could all be traced from the victims and crime scenes to Paul Durosso. Some of the evidence included the fibers from a blanket in which Nicole Williams was found, which were later matched to those found in Durosso's home. Furthermore, DNA samples taken from some of the crime scenes and victims matched with samples obtained from Durosso. Jewelry belonging to Sarita and Giovanna was also found during a search of his car, and cell phone records from the two girls showed that they called him prior to their disappearance. 
Moreover, Times Union staff writer Veronica Chapin states that a bank surveillance tape shows Shawanda drawing money from an automated machine on the day she died, allegedly with Durosso's cab in the background. One of the unique characteristics that linked the murders was that in most of the cases, the killer's M.O. was very similar. The killer used cords such as extension or coaxial cable cords as a ligature around the victim's necks. Sheriff Nat Glover stated that the killer fashioned the cord into a peculiar slipknot during his strangulation of the women. The evidence increasingly supported the investigator's case against Durosso. Finally, on June 17, 2003, he was charged with five counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Nakia Kilpatrick, Shawanda McAllister, Nicole Williams, Sarita Cohen, and Giovanna Jefferson. Shortly after his arrest, Durosso was linked to yet another murder in Columbus, Georgia, that took place several years earlier when he was at Fort Benning. In September 1997, Tracy Habersham went missing after attending a party at Fort Benning's NCO club. A couple of days following her disappearance, a man walking his dog found her nude body in a ditch in the area where Tracy grew up. She had been strangled. The murder case remained unsolved for years until after Durosso's arrest on February 6, 2003. The profile of Habersham's murder was similar to the deaths of the five Jacksonville victims, prompting a further analysis of the case. DNA samples from Tracy's body were obtained and compared with samples taken from the other murders. Investigators quickly learned that the same person who was responsible for the deaths of the five Jacksonville women and the two unborn children was also responsible for Tracy's murder. The authorities stated that most of the women had non-consensual sex. However, they would not reveal if Tracy had also been abused. Ron Word of the Associated Press wrote that warrants for Durosso's arrest in connection with Tracy's murder were pending in Georgia. If Durosso was found guilty of the Florida murders, it was likely that he would never be directly tried for Tracy's murder. Paul Durosso had been arrested in the 1999 murder of Teresa Mack, a mother of three. The DNA at the scene of the crime matched with samples of Durosso's. Prosecutors felt that they had a very strong case against Durosso to take to court. On August 11th, prosecutors confirmed they would seek the death penalty in the trial of Durosso. The court set his pretrial hearing for mid-September 2003. Several days following his arrest, a grand jury indicted Durosso on five counts of first-degree murder. The indictment was essential if the state were to seek the death penalty. State Attorney Harry Shorstein, prosecuting the case against Durosso, was said to have welcomed the indictment which would facilitate the granting of his request for the death penalty at Durosso's upcoming trial. Although Shorstein planned to seek the death penalty, he stated that he would not pursue the matter of fetal rights. It's believed that charging Durosso with the deaths of the unborn children would likely cause more complications in the case. Pursuing the matter would have a tendency to interject an ancillary issue that could have a negative impact on the legal process down the road. The Business Journal in Jacksonville reported that the parents of three of the victims have filed suit against Gator City Taxi. The suit contends that their daughters were murdered because the cab company failed to perform an adequate background check when hiring accused serial killer Paul Durosseau as a cab driver. Durosseau was convicted of the murder of Teresa Mack and in December 2007 was sentenced to death by lethal injection. In January 2017, Durosso's death sentence was overturned by the Florida Supreme Court. The jury that sentenced Durosso was split 10 to 2, and the High Court declared a split decision unconstitutional in capital sentencing. He was resentenced to life in prison without parole on December 10, 2021.
after a jury split 10-2 in favor of another death sentence. He's now 51 years old, and he's incarcerated in Walton Correctional Institution.